And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Cootsheet Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Cootsheet Podcast. And as, as, as the October country overtakes the United States with uh, the sound of rain on the sidewalk sounding like... I don't know. It's some Bradbury thing. The sound <laughs> yeah, yeah, of pitter-patter of little feet. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, every time it's October in, uh, in the Midwest, which is where I grew up and where I now live, I can't help but think of Bradbury. I can't think of another author who has laid claim to a month. I mean, another author, mainstream literary poetry, whatever. Nobody owns a month the way Bradbury owns October. Well, I mean, he did write at least two major books in that sort of uh, autumnal, Halloween-y kind of setting. You know, there's the October country itself, and there's obviously mm-hmm. something wicked this way comes. And they've been around for more than half a century apiece kind of thing. So they've mm-hmm. had a chance. So yeah, at least in the US, I think that's true. Outside the US, I don't think it's remotely true. But in the US, very um, much so. Yeah, you're probably true. There's... I don't think had, I mean, Bradbury had traction, but I don't think it anywhere near the, this is one of those things like the perspective of contemporary science fiction is still so U S centric that oh, yeah. we forget that for all these people who are read around the world. I mean, the, uh, particularly in the English language publishing world of, you know, the United Kingdom and its territories and the United States. Um, but outside that, yeah, not so much. And here, I mean, not really at all. Mm-hmm. You, you don't mean that Bradbury isn't read there. Bradbury is read, but not as widely, and less much 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 less widely as time goes on than he once was. He's, some of his work is still assigned in schools and whatever else, but not as widely. Oh, I think that's and, true. And uh, Halloween, for example, and in fact, the whole well, first of all, October Country doesn't mean the same thing. Out, you know, well, obviously, it doesn't mean the same thing. The, the, right. the, so. It's that sort of odd kind of disconnect that also stops its kind of like meshing in. I mean, Bradby was, was writing the October Country for a country that was moving into winter in October, moving towards mm-hmm. winter. And so when you're on the other side of the world, that doesn't really at all. So then the That's- entire non-English speaking world or non-English pu- mm. language publishing world doesn't pick it up. And also the um, Southern Hemisphere doesn't pick it up in the same way. So it's one of those like local resonance things, yeah? I always suspected that Bradbury's appeal around the world had very little to do with the science fiction and everything to do with his creation of a kind of nostalgic version of middle America, which people would then take to be the reality uh, that you know, growing up in the Midwest must have been like that. Not to be obnoxious, but we don't necessarily share your nostalgia for 1950s America. Well, in Bradbury's case, it was 1920s America, but I understand that as well. Yeah. So... That sense of nostalgia that you get or you might feel when you look at Bradbury, which I can understand because you get to pick it up like in a weird third-hand way about being nostalgic or seeing that it's supposed to be nostalgic and having that nostalgic connection through other media rather than through lived experience. I think one of the things Bradbury did, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that part of what Bradbury did, apart from apart from his science fiction or fantasy or the last, as far as I'm concerned, the most significant of his works remains the October Country, which is a collection mostly of fantasy and horror stories, few science fiction stories. And interestingly enough, that collection I don't think is included in the first Library of America edition. Of- See, but- I would have thought that the most the most prominent books of his were the two big collections of stories, you know, the stories of Ray Bradbury that came as two paperbacks, and um, Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451 is certainly probably the most widely read. It's the one that was popular enough in France for Francois Truffaut to make a film of it. It has to deal with censorship. It has to do with the darkest parts of America in the 1950s McCarthyism. It's also probably the least, <coughs> excuse me, least characteristic Bradbury work. Um, I think what he did in his other short fiction was to establish a kind of myth of nostalgia, which becomes kited in American culture ever since then. Bradbury's nostalgia of the 20s appears in the 1950s. Um, and 1950s stuff, which people were reading when they were, but people living in the 1950s were reading Bradbury's nostalgia of the 1920s. They created their own nostalgia of the 1950s, which then affected people like, let's say, Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s. So you have generations of nostalgia. You now have things on television like Stranger Things, for example, which represent nostalgia for the 80s, but it really rep- represents 
80s nostalgia for the 50s, which you could argue really represents 50s nostalgia for the 20s. And if I were to look back <laughs> far enough, I suspect that some 1920s fantasies were nostalgia for the 1890s. Every 30 years, it's a new generation of nostalgia in America. I'm sure that's true. I mean, from my own perspective, I think that reading, when I read some, Something Wicked This Way Comes and the October Country mm. for the first time in the late 1980s, I think. Mm -hmm. And it felt like nostalgia for a Disney version of something. It felt like a, they both felt like Disney books. Um, I, I, could, I could argue with that. I could see the reading easily. And I could see that there was some softening of the vision uh, mm -hmm. that, that had been much darker earlier. According to Bradbury, one of the things I would love to have seen was, at least Bradbury claimed, that at one point Sam Peckinpah wanted to make a movie of it. Sam Peckinpah of the Wild Bunch, one of the most yeah, violent yeah. directors in American history. And, and Peckinpah apparently loved it. But if you'd had Peckinpah's dark vision together with what happens in that, which is, you know, something wicked this way comes, is essentially a version of Charles Finney's The Circus of Dr. Lau, which, interestingly enough, takes us back to the 30s again. Um, but in, I, I think it's, it's a, it was a dark vision which Bradbury softened up because by the time he published it and finished revising it, he was kind of a lovable old uh, senior citizen of American letters. So true. It's it, it's not as it's not as tough-minded a book as some of the stories in the October Country. Remember, this is the guy who wrote the Small Assassin, who is sure. a, a murderous baby. Come on, that's that's cool. Stuff. Hey, look, before the nineteen eighties, when I encountered a specialist bookstore, the only place I'd read Ray Bradbury was like I think the Pedestrian in yeah, a high school English course. Yeah, and, and I think that's well. That's one of the things that high school English courses, whether here or around the world, have done more damage to contemporary writers than anything else. Because <laughs> the things they get taught are, are are the things that are easiest to teach. Yeah. The things that have the simplest, most blatant morals attached to them, like the pedestrian, for example. <laughs> but enough about Bradbury. You had a very interesting topic for tonight's conversation, which I am surprised we haven't come up with before and which we probably won't be able to exhaust even in a whole podcast. True. Well, not least because we haven't coordinated any thoughts about it, but prompted by an email from Ethan Davis, I think it was, who is the executor for the estate of Avram Davidson. He wrote mm -hmm. to us to tell us that coming in December is a new Avram Davidson novel. I think it's called Beer, 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 which was found amongst Avram's papers mm -hmm. and I believe is inspired by events in Brooklyn or Yonkers or somewhere where they found during maybe Prohibition uh, pipes being pumped onto the, onto the streets of New York with illegal, illicit beer. Mm. Right? And that made me think about posthumously published fiction, particularly public po posthumously published science mm -hmm. fiction and fantasy, and you know, whether it had been, whether there had been major worthwhile works of science fiction and fantasy published posthumously, you know? And so I'm curious, I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts, but I'm curious where you might start this discussion, Mr. Wolf. Well, okay, let's, let's make Not some distinctions thought. here. Published yeah. posthumously uh, is say a novel is complete and it's uh, and the, the yeah. author wanted it published and it couldn't get published. Um, that's different from revised or completed by somebody else or published well, without thing. the author's prior knowledge. That's okay. a third thing because okay. there's actually three or four things, right? And let's just lay it out the way I see it. There is work that was completed at the time of the author's death, but not published, but was in train to be published. An yes. example of this might be Forward the Foundation by Isaac Asimov. He had completed the book and delivered it to the publish, publisher. Mm -hmm. It was then published after he happened to die. Then there are things like uh, collections of short stories, all of which have been published prior to the author's death, but then are collected in some way after the author's death, whether they be right. uh, best ofs or whatever else, right? There's all that kind of thing. Then there's stuff which was completed prior to the author's death, but was never able to be published for reasons to be determined, either they were uh -huh. commercial, they weren't very good, whatever else. And then finally, the dodgier of, dodgiest sort of extreme of them all, which I actually wasn't thinking about at all, which was works completed by other hands for reasons to be determined. Right. I think that's all of the options, right? So there's a spectrum there. There's a considerable spectrum, yeah. And I, I think you're right. At one extreme end of the spectrum, the best example I can think of isn't a science fiction example, but there was a novel back around 1980. Uh, called The Confederacy of Dunces, a really hilarious novel. 
And the yes. young author uh, named John Kennedy Toole, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. had spent a John decade Kennedy trying O'Toole. to... He could not get the novel published, and he committed mm-hmm. suicide eventually. And 10 years later, his mother got the novel published by, I'm going to say, the University of Louisiana Press or some university press. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It was a terrific novel. And this poor kid had spent most of his life trying to get it published. So we know that he wanted that novel published. Yes. And we know that that was a satisfi- satisfaction of the author's wishes. I mean, if you look at other mainstream stuff, there's um, there are people who specifically wanted their stuff not to be published, and that's an issue. Sure. Because um, then you get like Albert Camus, who didn't want his stuff published, did he? Kafka I didn't mean, want his stuff published. Oh, Kafka, sorry, Kafka, not Camus. And then you yeah, get the I mean, opposite where you get Northanger Abbey, right? Which was right. written and sold during the author's lifetime, and the publisher opted not to publish publish it for reasons unknown, and the family right. reacquired the rights later on and had it published. And we don't know what the author would have thought about that. We don't know. We well, don't no, have Richard told it to be published. Oh, she, so she, yeah, she, she did, but it was also a youthful work, and that's mm-hmm, the other sure. thing. But but here's the thing with Jane Austen: it creates another problem. Uh, there there are various ways of responding to to this question, and one of them. Is why do such books exist? Why does why do we have posthumous books by writers? And the obvious number one answer to that question is somebody thinks there's a market for it. And the question is, what is the market? Now, if we're talking at the heights of literary achievement, we're talking Jane Austen, let's say. Um, well, scholars and readers and historians of literature want to know everything they can about Jane Austen. She's a canonical writer. It's a legitimate object of study to find sure. her unpublished. And, and the same thing's true with... Um, so that's at best a niche market, surely. Exactly. Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, but, I mean, it's, it's, scholars and academics are fine, but I mean, that's a niche market. It's a niche market, I mean, but it's the reason that you have everything ever written by, uh, by, by Nathaniel Hawthorne or Henry James or Willa Cather. Oh. Those things are out there because they, they deserve to be studied. Um, they're one of the things I think that happens with uh, with estates of writers, two things. One is you have an estate that thinks it can make some money off the author's name and simply is trying to make money for the family, which may or may not be a, a responsible attitude. Then I've actually had some dealings with estates who think the author is one of these canonical authors who deserves to be in that niche market. In other words, uh, let's take, I can't think of a name. I can't think of anybody who's actually doing this. Let's take for the sake of argument right now, What's happened to Robert Heinlein posthumous? Mm-hmm. Uh, first posthumous novel of his that I read was uh, that very young one from the... Well, I would need to pull up the, uh, his records for a second to look at the exact dates of publication because yeah. I think, I mean, uh, the, was it To Sail Beyond the Sunset was published just before he died, was it? I think, it, well, it, it was, certainly was his final manuscript, I think. I'm not sure of that. Um, yeah, because... But the one I'm thinking of is... For, I don't know if this was the first one that was actually assembled and published after his death, but for us, The Living um, was yes. a very young, youthful work. It was not published during his lifetime. My own guess is that by the time he had become the legendary Robert Heinlein, he probably didn't care for anybody to, to see this youthful work. And it was fascinating. Uh, that may be true. I mean, some stuff he left, left instructions for it not to be published, and yeah. some he didn't. But, I mean, he, he died in 88, Okay. And subsequent to his death, they published Rust the Living, which is the book you're talking about, his first not first finished novel that yeah. wasn't p- published during his lifetime. Then they did the perhaps more questionable thing where Spider Robinson completed a manuscript of his variable star. Right. And then they did last year's book or this year's book, The Pursuit of the Pancara, which is the exhumation of the original draft of The Number of the Beast. Right. And I th- th- that the last one is the one I consider questionable. Um, oh, I think they're all questionable. I think they're all at best of academic interest and probably should have remained in manuscript. Well, uh, I would argue, I'm not have, I have not read The Pursuit of the Pancare, and I keep wanting to call it The Pursuit of Pancakes, and I wish somebody would write that novel, as a matter of fact. But I, I didn't like Number of the Beast. I thought The Number of the Beast was an unruly mess. And Oh, I think everything after it in 1971 is an unruly mess. Well, that's mess. one of the reasons I thought for us The Living was so fascinating, because for somebody who was not a scholar of Heinlein, but at least interested in Heinlein's development, you can see how many of his ideas were, were laid out when he was a yeah. very young man. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating. But this is the academic thing, right? This it's is the kind of the question. academic thing. You're right. For, for, for us, The Living is not a very good book. No, it's not. But it's of academic interest to Heinlein scholars and it's, a footnote at best. 
if right. you were not if um, you were not familiar with Heinlein's work and you, you would never show for us the living to somebody and say here here's an introduction to no. Robert Heinlein uh, I don't even know if it's still in print uh, but then the other two books um, the one with Spider Robinson and the Pursuit of the Pancara are much more questionable both in quality and in uh, value of being published I mean one's a partial manuscript and, and probably should have stayed that mm-hmm. and the other is, as I understand it, a version which he expressly said should not be published. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where you have to wonder, do you follow the author's wishes? This is the argument. I don't know what the argument of the estate would be, but I'm I'm sure the argument would be it's too important to follow his wishes. And I have problems with that argument. I have problems with that that argument, and at least one of them is, actually, the whole wishes of the author is a whole separate question, and it's maybe based you have to look at from a personal perspective of mm. how you think should be looked at. But with um, The Pursuit of the Pancara, it's not a major book. I mean, no. this is a book that couldn't find a trade publisher. Right. You know? So this is, I mean, on one hand, it's oh, energy and enthusiasm from people trying to keep the author's name out there in the world, which I can respect, but is also, um, yeah, something that I'm, I think is questionable. But I think we need to, like, try and fast uh, shape this discussion into some coherent questions, right? And the well, first one I would ask you is this. Okay. Can you think of a work or works that were major and of interest published subsequent to the author's death that the author had not prepared for publication prior to his death or her death, their death? First one that death. comes to mind is the Silmarillion. But the author didn't complete that. Well, the author... <laughs> It's an interesting question because there was a lot of it completed, but it wasn't a finished work. Um, no. And there were lots of notes left behind, which I gather, Christopher Guest, I gather with the assistance of Guy Gabriel Kay, were able to assemble into something that has a sense of coherence. Um, and there are uh, some editions of the Silmarillion, which are academic editions, let you know what's what. Um, there's even an edition of The Hobbit. I have a two-volume edition of The Hobbit that has every variant it's not, it's, it makes it unreadable, but it's wonderful for scholars. Um, did you have another example in mind? Oh, of, of, of a major work that was actually was worth yeah. having published, which, no, that's, that's one of my problems. I can think of all sorts of posthumous works, but I can't off the top of my head in science fiction, fantasy, and horror think of a major posthumously published book that was not actually prepared by the author and which was, or which, and I would make this... Um, caveat which was not made up of otherwise published works so for example yeah. we we started off the discussion with avram davidson mm-hmm. uh his lime killer which came out 12 years ago and in my opinion is one of his major works is entirely comprised of major work published prior to his death compare i mean for us the living by comparison is stuff mm-hmm. that was never intended for publication really or if you look at i mean i think they've published four frank herbert novels since he died None of which, you know, sort of have gained much of a foothold well, continue, in the world. But you're, you're talking about Frank Herbert novels and not the continuation of, of Dune by Other Hands, which is a separate matter. Yes, exactly. I mean, I'm expressly saying they published four, I think, mystery novels or crime novels or something um, back, you know, sort of it's subsequent to his, him passing. High Up, Angels Fall. A Game of Authors and a Thorn in the Bush were all published okay. subsequent to his death. And I don't think that most people in the field would be aware that they even exist. Oh, I, I agree. And I can give you two examples, uh, one from each end of the spectrum that almost nobody remembers at all. Well, one mm-hmm. that nobody remembers. The novel that nobody remembers is St. Leibowitz and the Wild Horse Woman, which was apparently a manuscript almost finished by Walter M. Miller. Yes, uh, He clearly wanted to finish it. He wanted to publish it. He died before he could finish it. It was yes. published, finished uh, at the time anonymously, finished by Terry Bisson. Um, mm-hmm. And what you ended up with was, was first, first of all, it's not a sequel. It's an interpolated story, um, yep. which I, one of the lost opportunities of science fiction writers who want to do this sort of thing was not looking at a canticle for Leibowitz because you've got three sections of the book with 600 years between each section. So there's room for all kinds of novels. And this was yeah. one of the novels that took place in the interstices of his section. Uh, I read it. I reviewed it. It's fine. It's not, nobody reads it anymore. Um, it has nothing to do with uh, really the reputation of a canticle for Leibowitz. Um, 
But it's more a Walter Miller novel than it is a Terry Bisson novel. I think one of the reasons that Terry did it uh, anonymously at the time, as I recall, was that he really wanted this to look like the novel that Walter Miller wanted to finish. Mm. Now, at the other end of that spectrum is something which has been going on much, much more recently. And that is the weirdest, what I thought at first was the weirdest collaboration I could imagine between Stephen Baxter and Terry Pratchett, the Long Earth series, which apparently was a series of ideas and and some sketches and things that Pratchett wrote early in his career, even before Discworld. Um, which Stephen Baxter then picked up on and, and, and used his kind of hard SF mojo to, uh, to, to rationalize. Um, and I read a couple of them. <clears throat> and as far as I can tell, you can pick up flashes, phrases, maybe whole sentences of Pratchett here and there, but they're basically Stephen Baxter novels. Sure. How, how do you feel that ties in? I mean, I realize it's posthumous, but do you see them as being desirable, undesirable, okay, not okay. I mean, it sounds like something which Pratchett had, in fact, I know because that was in interviews that Baxter certainly gave that Pratchett wanted to, it to come out. He wanted it to be written, but at the stage of, at the time of his life that it happened, he didn't have the energy to write it at least. Yeah. So that seems to well me to be fine. And the books seem to have been reasonably well received. Um, I am curious about, you know, the class of posthumous publication that's clearly Hope that the people who are deciding to publish it clearly hope that they are going to garner excitement for the author and other work by the author. And it doesn't, I mean, as evidenced by, we mentioned, I mean, I have to mm-hmm. say, I have not read the four posthumously published Frank Herbert novels. I've never even seen copies of them, I but I know they exist. Um, so I can't tell you whether I think they would be good, bad, or indifferent, or whether they should have been published or not really, but they certainly didn't, change his reputation or keep it alive more or whatever else no and i um well this is kind of getting into the territory of of continuation by other hands uh, on the other hand i've heard the argument made and this is again hearsay because I, I i did not get very far into the wheel of time at all when it was coming out um i've read a couple of other novels by brandon sanderson and, and mm-hmm. more than one person i know who are very familiar with the wheel of time argue that Brandon Sanderson elevated the literary quality of that series beyond what Jordan was probably capable of. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I gather that Sanderson has a stronger reputation among readers of at least partially literary fantasy than, than, than Jordan did. Um, does that improve the reputation? Does it, is, is the fact that Brandon Sanderson kept that series alive one of the reasons behind the new HBO 6,000 episode, whatever no. it is. Um, no, you don't think I don't so. believe it is at all. No, not at all. It's, it's just I, a reputation. I think, he was a, I think it was a great choice to finish the series based on um, Jordan's notes. And again, like yourself, I've not read them. But I mean, those were colossally successful books. Oh, yeah. And film adaptations and TV adaptations were in train long before Jordan died. So I think, you know, it, it probably would not have hurt but to suggest that it was something that helped cement the possibility of the Amazon yeah. Prime series, um, I think is uh, not really accurate. Well, okay, it may not be. I mean, I think there may be some effect that you know, Wheel of Time books continue to come out regularly, and from what I hear, fairly high quality, years after Jordan's death. Uh, but whether no, it had I mean, any it was impact just, it was just That's not true. Okay. What happened was... Jordan had the ideas for the final book, the one final book in the series. Well, you're right, right, right. The conclusion. There was one final book, and I remember I sat in Charles Brown's living room one afternoon mm-hmm. with Jordan and his wife Harriet, who'd come up yeah. for an interview, and he he said that there was one book to come, and that Tor had said they would spend whatever they had to do to get bound into one single volume. Ah, and okay. when he died. The notes existed and whatever else. And Harriet, I believe, worked with um, Brandon Sanderson. And I think it's there was three books that made up the final thing. And okay. that was it. It didn't continue beyond that original thing. So there's not been subsequent, subsequent, subsequent. Okay. There's been this thing that that um, that, that uh, Sanderson did. So, you know, that's that. And it'll be interesting to see how the television show works in terms of supporting re- the reputation. That the television shows plainly when they work do more to enhance the author's posthumous reputation than almost any posthumous work ever has. Okay, let me give two other examples that we can talk about. One is um, Octavia Butler, 
who uh, is now being republished by the Library of America. Sure. I've not talked to um, Jerry Canavan, who's doing this. The first volume is Kindred, Kindred Fledgling and, and Stories. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a plan. I'm not sure of this. I don't think there's a plan to include her novel Survivor, which she publicly stated more than once. She didn't ever want to be reprinted. She described sure. it as her attempt at a Star Trek novel. Uh, I actually read it. It's not nearly as bad as Octavia apparently thought it was, but it's 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 derivative. It's not it's not the kind of thing that would made her reputation. But she's Octavia Butler, so should Survivor be republished, uh, even though she clearly didn't want it to be republished during her lifetime? Okay, I think it's completely outside the scope of posthumous publication. Okay, all right. And I'll tell you why. Because it had been this has to do with preservation of reputation and the tactic you're going to use to to achieve that if you need to do things to support it. And obviously, to a certain point, though only a minor point in some ways, in my opinion, being published in the Library of America is nice, and that happens. It's far more important that it's published by a trade publisher, which her work oh, yeah. is, and it's out in bookstores and everything else. Um, whether survivors included or not, really, you know, sort of neither here nor there. The link with Butler, I thought you were going to go which does tie in, is there are two posthumously published works by uh, Octavia E. Butler. There were two short stories that she sold to Harlan Ellison for The Last Dangerous Visions, and which were pulled and put into her collection, Bloodchild and Other Stories, I think, or in a subsequent collection. There's there's one after that. Uh, It was a little short thing. Yeah. Right. Um, And and those stories are fine, and I've got no problem with that because she'd submitted those for publication. Right. That segues into one that we've not really touched on here, and that is... Obviously, since the death of Harlan Ellison, J. Michael Straczynski, mm. in his capacity as the uh, executor of Harlan Ellison's literary estate, is overseeing the re-editing and revisioning and hopeful, because they haven't sold it, publication of The Last Dangerous Visions. How do you feel about that, Gary Wolf? I think that Straczynski, first of all, is not representing it as the book that Harlan would have edited. He's uh, introduced a table of contents, which includes writers who were children, some, probably some writers who weren't even born when, when sure. Harlan first put together this. Uh, so he's essentially, I, I don't know what his public statements have, have, have said uh, with any specificity, but my sense is he's trying to resurrect the idea of The Last Dangerous with a handful of stories that had been bought by Harlan and have not been bought back or, or, or just become obsolete. So my guess is there's some segment of this new anthology, which would have been in Harlan's original anthology, and the rest of it is newly solicited work. In other words, he wants to do a last dangerous, but he's not claiming that this is the last dangerous. I, I don't envy Straczynski the task. That, that's the first thing I'd say. Mm. And from what I understand, he has returned the vast majority of the stories that survived for yeah. the Dang- last Dangerous Visions to their authors to do with, or their estates, as they will. Uh, and I believe the final manuscript, including the new stories that he solicited, is about 120,000 words long, which is about yeah. a three, 400-page book. Whereas I think at its height, The Last Dangerous Visions was potentially three volumes and whatever else. It was over 400,000 words at one point. I- yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my own feeling on this if it's not clear, is this book should should have been set aside many years ago, and there's no good reason for putting it out of the world at all, even now. Uh, I don't think it enhances Ellison's reputation. I don't think it enhances Dangerous Visions' brand or reputation. I don't think it enhances Straczynski's reputation. I don't think it achieves much of anything other than ticking a minor esoteric box in the history of the field. Well, I think that's a large part of what it is, though. It, 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 it's resurrecting. You're right. It's resurrecting a brand. Uh, it, it's, no, it's, I said that I don't think it will resurrect a brand. I think I, it's well, trying it's, to. It's, it's, it, it, it's trying to, to some extent. I mean, Straczynski is essentially known for for film and television and not for fiction, not for certainly not yes. for editing other people's fiction. Um, no. He doesn't have the reputation in the field. A, gar- a, good part of the last da- a good part of the first two Dangerous Visions anthologies and some would argue now, maybe the most important part uh, were Ellison's introductions and afterwards and, 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 and the chit-chat that made up a huge chunk of the books. Those were very personal Ellison books in that sense. And he made uh, uh, some interesting, hyperbolic sometimes, but interesting critical comments about the writers he was talking about. In other words, it was a conversation between Ellison and the field with illustrations drawn from these writers that he had, 
invited in. And there are some classic stories that came out of those anthologies. Sure. None of that can be reconstructed. I don't yeah. think Straczynski is claiming to reconstruct anything like that. He is not the personality, the dominant personality in the literary science fiction field that Ellison was. Uh, and I don't think he's pretending to be. Whether the book does anything uh, beyond what other dangerous visions things, Al, Al Ser Antonio published horror and fantasy anthologies that were marketed as the dangerous visions of horror. Or the, sure, so everybody wants to, you know, everybody wants to uh, plug in on that brand name because it's, it's, a, it's a great sounding title. Um, it just makes you think, oh boy, this is stuff I'm not supposed to read. But I don't think it works nearly as well now as it did in the late 60s and early 70s. I think you're right. It's oh, kind look, of a historical. Dangerous Visions belongs in its time. Yeah. There's no doubt that Dangerous Visions itself, and again, Dangerous Visions, which I think came out three years later, were towering achievements in the history of the field and were entirely very influential at that time. They're I think branched. they belong in that place. Exactly. Uh, what, su what surprised me about the the announcements with the last Andrew Visions is they've said they're offering to publishers the rights to the two previous books and the new book. Yeah. Which suggests to me that they must be out of the print in the US. I know that certainly the last the Danger Visions I think is in print in the UK, but I would be I'm surprised if the others are out of print. I've not checked. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like I just can't see the purpose of it. It's not really a dangerous visions. It's not I mean it just seems like something that should shouldn't be well there's no point to having happen. And as a posthumous thing in the context of this discussion, there's mm -hmm. nothing the last Dangerous Visions can do that will contribute to Harlan Ellison's reputation. That's absolutely correct. Um, and then you know, and the, the, um, the, the fact that he had some good stories purchased back in the 1970s, supposedly the Octavia Butler story we were talking about was the first story uh, that he bought for Last Dangerous Visions because she'd been his student at this screenwriting workshop or something. Uh, so there, there are a lot of historical reasons why that's... Uh, an important anthology. But you're right, it's part of literary history now. It's not part of the kind of living, breathing part of the field. But in a sense, it's like a new wave. Um, and it, in fact, it presented itself as, an, as a kind of mostly American new wave when it, when it came out. Um, and that never dies out. People are constantly putting out new, new wave anthologies. There's a book which I'm uh, reviewing very shortly in Locus, fine, fine anthology that second volume of the South Asian uh, yep. book of science fiction uh, in the introduction talks about, well, this is sort of a South Asian new wave. It may very well be, but use of that term is trying to link these stories oh, with sure. a sure. traditional history of science fiction. I think dangerous visions is kind of the same thing. It's kind of a magical phrase. I'm sure there are good new stories in it, uh, and I'm not going to ignore it when it comes out. I, I don't know what, I think there's a Cory Doctorow story, in, um, for example. Uh, an interesting yeah, writer. There's, there's so, James S. A. Corey story in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to ignore it because it's uh, uh, a, a, a little bit of an appeal to nostalgia in the title. Yeah, look, but, I'm going to be fascinated to see if they find a publisher for it. That'll frankly. be interesting because they have, a, yeah, I guess, a fairly powerful agency behind it. Uh, so we'll see. This, this actually, this actually also begins to link into a different topic, which we may or may not get to, but that is the value of post of posthumous publication because. In a number of the cases that we've touched on, the Heinlein books, the Herbert huh. books, arguably the Last Dangerous Visions, they obviously haven't proven to be as marketable as the estates would have hoped and haven't found wide sales. They haven't come out from trade publishers, or if they have, they've come out for a short period of time, that kind of thing. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I just wonder how effective that can be. I mean, probably an exception here would be, I think there's three maybe or four. Uh, Philip K. Dick novels that were published posthumously, yeah, and they got sucked up in the success of his estate. Um, and there's probably, I, mean, I would imagine, I mean, I assume something like Ford, the Foundation, the Asimov book is still in print, and you know oh, those sorts of things. Is. And the Philip Dick things, well, some of those were mainstream novels that he wanted published, just couldn't. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here's another example that uh, it's much much closer to home for you and uh, you and I, uh, for you and me. Gee. What about an author who was never commercial? who apparently has several unpublished stories and a couple of unpublished novels, Ari Lafferty. Um, yeah, that, that's a difficult great. one. It would be great if uh, somehow the current estate owners, which is Locust Foundation, could could get these published, according to Andrew Ferguson, who has read them in, in the manuscripts at uh, Oklahoma. Some of the stories are really good, 
and I think he said at least one of the novels was, was okay, uh, pretty good. Um, but the problem is Lafferty was never close to being a commercial writer during his lifetime. So why should we, as people involved in the estate, think that he'll sell any better now than he did then? It's, it's very hard to answer in some ways. I know that there is a small, dedicated readership who are very eager to read all yes. of the additional work that exists. And I don't know the exact number, so this is sort of based on my vague recollection from four or five, six years ago when I last looked at this and was last involved in it, because I haven't been involved for a, that long. Well, this is when you were um, editing The Best of Barry Lafferty. For... No, no. I mean, I, I did that subsequent, but I used to be involved with the Lafferty Committee and with ah, the rights okay. and sales, and I stepped oh, out of that right. some yeah. time ago. But I think there's certainly there's one solid collection of unpublished short stories, about 10 sure. or 12 stories. Yeah. And I think there's maybe somewhere between three to six unpublished novels, most of which are completions of existing series that were never completed. Right. And one of the problems there is they're completions of series that were never particularly commercially successful. And, and I think in most cases weren't actually published by trade publishers. They're published by energetic small presses who did lovely editions of their stuff. Yeah. The last stuff. few things published during Lafferty's lifetime are published so by these small I, presses. I think that what the foundation, what the estate has been doing is being, I mean, they've managed to get the, the best of Ari Lafferty into the world as a way of maintaining his reputation to some degree. And it sits in the Golan's masterworks. Mm -hmm. And I think in the Tor essentials programs, getting it into print there, and I think there have been other editions of books published elsewhere. And there's a handful of works published, certainly digitally through the Golan's SF Gateway, right? Mm -hmm. This other stuff, it's harder to publish. And one of the things is probably the simplest way to have done it would have been for Locus itself to form a publishing arm and put them out digitally. But that has its own issues. And so right. I think it's been a matter of trying to find publishing publishers for them. And at this point, there haven't been... You know, a lot of publishers interested. It may prove, if with some good luck, the um, the best of them, whatever else does well, there might be more interest. But at the moment, I, the impression I get, and I'm not up to date on this, is that there's, that there's not a lot of interest. No, I think there's not. And I think there's another awkwardness uh, involving Lafferty, which is that there's 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 among a small literati, a small group of literati who are not necessarily science fiction readers, some of his novels are very impressive. I was... Uh, I was a little bit stunned when um, I put together the 60s volume for the Library of America. The other, the editors at the Library of America loved the Lafferty. Uh, and yeah. they started finding out uh, Oklahanale, I think, is his mainstream kind of uh, Native American yeah, history novel. I hear uh, it, it's, it's a terrific novel, but it's not of interest to science fiction people. He was never on the radar of the literary people. So he's in one of the, he's, he's fallen between the cracks. There's not yeah. enough of a science fiction audience to resurrect him. He was never widely enough known. Uh, to to a mainstream audience, and uh, as as much uh, heroic effort as as his fans like Neil Gaiman put in on uh, on on keeping his name alive, he's never reached either audience in substantial enough numbers to warrant uh, significant reprints. Which goes back to yeah. the kind of the academic argument, which is that one of the things that academic presses do, or small presses or university presses, is that they can put things into print that are not necessarily commercially viable to any other publisher. Yeah, I mean, look, I would love to see these books in print, and I know that the foundation would. Um, how it's going to happen, I don't know. Um, I think we just have to sort of sit there and kind of hope they can be made to work, I guess. Well, you know? I mean, this is, and this there, is yeah, it, it, it's and one other of the other issues. Stuff. I, mean, you know, I still think, you know, there, there's, I mean, I think there may even be other Lafferty works to be on uncovered, even though I believe that there is, you know, they've got a fairly solid grasp on everything. Mm -hmm. Well, there's another thing, um, which I guess is more awkward to, to discuss. What about uh, writers who whose posthumous works are more or less reconstructed by other people? And we were talking about, for example, the Stephen Baxter thing. But there have been a number of posthumous collaborations between Philip Jose Farmer and a number of younger writers who are all part of a fan, of, 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 of Farmer fandom and who... Uh, have essentially some of them uh, are skilled writers, but essentially a large part of them have more or less used Farmer's name and work to uh, to further their own careers in, in ways that may or may not be successful. I don't know. 
this is not something that Farmer ever explicitly prohibited or endorsed. Um, yeah. But it's it, it, that, that veers very much in my mind toward a kind of fan fiction, which manages to get uh, professionally published by, by, by a house yeah. devoted to that. Um, Could be. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just different. It's, 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 it's an, I was going to say, where does fan fiction fit into this? If it's I don't think fan it fiction, a posthumous thing. I've got, I've got no problem with fan fiction. Fan fiction is what it is, mm. um, and it, it doesn't really relate at all. Um, I don't think. If fan yeah, fiction turns into a novel that gets published with specific reference to the source name, then it strikes me it's it's in our bailiwick here. Uh, how is the um? How is it that it ties in? How does fan fiction tie in with posthumously published work? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of fan, somebody listening might be able to think of an example of a fan essentially taking some unfinished notes or something or some ideas from an author, and uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm not just publishing it in the fan venues, but actually getting a commercial version of it out there, which uh, which then becomes a posthumous collaboration. Yeah. There must be the way, I thought I, 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 just a, a quick thing to drive the Lafferty fans out there crazy. I had a quick uh-huh. look at some old notes that I have, and by my estimation, I think there's 12 unpublished Lafferty novels. 12? Yeah. Uh, that's impressive. And here's somebody we know uh, I mean, is having trouble getting published by the end of his life. Yeah, and there's a, there's so, a historical novel. There's the rest of the Coscoan Chronicles, the, the rest of the you know, the Flame is Green series. Well, here's a so, question which, which, which is... Yeah. Purely academic question that may be unanswerable, but when you've got those Lafferty novels, and I think it's a fair assumption that he would like to have had most, if not all of them, published. Um, I don't know whether that's the case, for example, with Heinlein. In other words, does does it make a difference whether we have any knowledge at all of what the author's wishes were? I, I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that Heinlein actually wrote on the box that the manuscript of The Pursuit of Pankara sits in, not for publication, yeah, that's... tells you something. The fact that the main reason that uh, that R.A. Lafferty's work was unpublished was because he couldn't find a market for it, or he wasn't necessarily the most organized marketer of his own work at times. Right. Uh, that's a different thing. I think it's fair to say that for most of the completed manuscripts he would have preferred they were published the only thing that you don't know in that case is how those manuscripts would have survived a publication process the odds are they would have been edited yeah and he would have taken part in that editing process and you never know how an author would respond to edits on their work posthumously and this is where scholarship comes in because i know again from talking to the I, probably the most knowledgeable person about these Lafferty manuscripts is Andrew Ferguson, who's done has dis- doing has done his dissertation. Um, probably there is correspondence with editors that indicates what stage in the uh, negotiation process these manuscripts were. Some of them may have been rejected outright. Some of the versions we have may have been revised, uh, mm-hmm. may have uh, followed editorial guidance. I don't know. I don't even know who Lafferty's editors were uh, toward the end, but. I th- I, his most them. effective editor was uh, undeniably um, da- Damon Knight. Uh, oh, for the short fiction, absolutely, yes. Um, yeah. and, and Damon Knight was also the most effic- effective short fiction editor for people like Gene Wolfe. Sure. My question is, this is why, this is why I argue for the, in, in favor of the importance of scholarship, which is always a fraught question in science fiction studies, looking at manuscripts, not only manuscripts, but looking at the correspondence between editors and writers will give us a sense of how finished a manuscript was in the author's mind uh, in a way that we couldn't mm-hmm. guess on our own. In other words, if, for example, you find that um, I, so author number X had extensive uh, correspondence with, let's say, David Hartwell before a novel was to be published, and it was almost finished, and then the author died. We might be able to find the evidence that this is the author. This is the novel the author wanted published, as opposed to another manuscript which might have been rejected thirty years ago, and the author never looked at it again. We don't know whether the author wanted to resurrect that or not. We have no mm-hmm. magical way of knowing the author's intentions unless we have correspondence. True, and the problem these days is you're not going to have correspondence. You're not going to have correspondence. Although one of the things the library, special collections librarian, told me is that. When they do get donations of uh, seven-inch discs, for example, 
they print everything out, um, which, which sounds enormously wasteful when you're talking about the size of some of these manuscripts. But the argument, this was somebody at the uh, New York University Library. Uh, but I look that, at the, uh, the stuff that I have edited, right? Mm-hmm. And that correspondence is entirely in email. Well, that's what I mean. When they, when an author, I don't know if every library does this, but I know a few years ago some of them were doing it. If you have a disk with the emails on it, you can donate okay. that disk, but the library will try to print out all the emails uh, out of fear that you know media become obsolete, which is obviously sure. already an issue. I mean, people, who, the, the uh, Wang word processor manuscript, for example that um, Stephen King and Peter Straub's The Talisman was originally written. By and large, uh, libraries don't, libraries would rather have a pile of paper than try to keep 15 generations of different word processing technology. Oh, sure, sure. I I totally get how it is um, convenient for scholars and academics. And I don't mean that in any way dismissively, but for, for example, Robert Heinlein to have sat down, written a typescript of the pursuit of Pancara and mm. sat with a pen, scribbled all over it, sent it over to off to his publisher, he scribbled all over it, sent it back, then he scribbled all over it again. And you can see here are here are the things where he's decided to change this. And so you can look back and you can look at the manuscript of his nineteen eighty four and the opening line for nineteen eighty four and see how the editor was the, the person who fixed the opening line to be right. as effective as it is, because the original opening line was longer and less impactful, right? Right. That kind of thing is great. Uh, but I think for a lot of science fiction, I don't think, or, contem- or post-1990 fiction, that stuff won't exist or be well, hard. To back, to- yeah, and to go back to your original question that started this whole thing, has anybody um, in the science fiction field had the reputation enhanced in any way by posthumous publication? And outside, like I say, outside of science fiction, we can think of Emily Dickinson, we can think of Kafka, we can think of uh, some of Poe's poetry. But, but within the science fiction field, I don't know. I don't know. Was I don't I, know if there been. Uh, I can't think of one where a reputation has been enhanced by the posthumous publication of a work of fiction. I can think of examples where uh, reputations have been enhanced or made by posthumous filming of work, you know, and again, yeah. surely the great example of that is Philip K. Dick, right? Yeah, right. Um, where his reputation, modern reputation rests on the fact that he became for a while there the beating heart of paranoid modern science fiction cinema. But for other people, you know, not really. And I mean, there are, I mean, you're right, there are some things which look significant, even though they, I mean, I think it, in science fiction fantasy, when you look back, even the most significant posthumous works are generally, though not exclusively, and I'm sure someone will come up with variations, uh, or almost always minor works of the author. I mean, th- I don't think anyone would argue, if we look at one of your examples, J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. that the Silmarillion is the major work in his bibliography. It's all, always going to sit at best after The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Oh, absolutely. And all the subsequent things. I mean, the, the, the publishing translations yeah. of, of, uh, of, of medieval English poems uh, that... The, the name Tolkien is a guarantee of a certain kind of thing, but it, nothing is going to come close to The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and I don't mm. think anybody expects it. I guess another question, another name, which I don't know if we mentioned earlier or not, was John M. Ford. And there's a there's mm. an effort underway right now. Uh, there are reprints of Ford's work. E- again, Ford wrote one of the great fantasies of the latter half of the 20th century, The Dragon Awaiting. Yes. Um, and there's at least one unpublished novel by Ford. Now, it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact, because no matter who has said wonderful things about a dragon waiting, I don't know if it's ever been resurrected as a, as, as a modern classic. I don't know if people think of it as a classic. I do. Yeah, look, I mean, yes, I think people, well, the pe- people who are closer to the field definitely see the dragon waiting as a, a classic. And didn't it win, I think, did it won the World Fantasy Award? I think, I think it did win the World Fantasy Award, yeah. But I think the important thing to say about forward is that what's being done is that Tor are reprinting uh, The Dragon Waiting and a couple of his other books, and they're doing the incomplete. I mean, the, the, the book you talk about is a book called Aspects. That's it. Which will come maybe late, well, sometime next year. And it was unfinished at 140,000 words. Mm. So it's an incomplete manuscript that's being published uh, by Tor alongside reprinting his major works, which is good. I mean, apart from the one work, which I suspect, I don't know, I'd have to look, will probably remain on published, which were his, was his Star Trek novel, uh, like yeah. unrepublished. 
unrepublished. Although I gather that one of the things that Tor is republishing is his Cold War spy thriller, which I've not read, a title I can't remember. Yeah. But it, I, again, I've heard terrific things about that. Just a very, very much a first-rate writer who was in danger of obscurity and now might be emerging from it. And I think you're right. The Star yes. Trek novel is not important. I mean, I don't think Joe Hall... No, Holden I didn't say that. I said they weren't going to reprint it. Well, I, okay. I, it, it's, Everybody it's not I know who's, who's read How Much for Just the Planet says it's, it's delightful. I'm sure it's delightful, but I don't think it's for the kind of thing that people will define as John M. Ford's major work. No, that's The Dragon Waiting. Yeah, The Dragon Waiting is probably it, and that's fine. Um, and I think the Dragon Waiting got added to uh, the Tor Essentials program. So that mm -hmm. and it's, I know it's a part of the Golan's Masterworks. So to some degree, that will help keep that in print because that touches on a, a unrelated but related thing, which is what is you know, we'll talk about maybe in more detail another time. But, but the, what is it sort of realistic for a modern reader to expect when they walk into a bookstore in terms of backlist and whatever else? And I know at least here things like the the uh, Golan's Masterworks are a way mm. of keeping some backlist in print. So books like um, The Dragon Waiting get to stay in print because they have the framework of the Masterworks to sit in. Right. And I think that's also one of the advantages, frankly, to online shopping is that you don't expect uh, to see Golan's Masterworks in a lot of bookstores outside of the UK. I don't think you'll see them. Well, I think any, anywhere in the uh, British Commonwealth you'll see them. Yeah, okay, you'll and see they're them. certainly common here in, in, in Australia. But we'll never see them here in the States. Well, no, they're not distributed there. That's my point, which means that you can still get them online, though, here. Well, yeah, but I mean, this, this, this is, we're going to talk right in circles. This is what the Tor, the Tor Essentials will hope Tor Essentials are, are valuable for exactly the same reason. I agree. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then, obviously, but, you know, sort of the U.S. needs that kind of thing. But, I mean, I've seen a lot of criticism over time of bookstores and book publishers because old books are falling out of print because Books from back when I was young aren't on the shelves anymore. And I don't think that's a very fair criticism. I don't think if you'd have gone back to the time when you or I were looking at those works in our lives, that works from similarly further back in the past were available as widely. You know, everything's changed. Well, the, the marketing, marketing classics are not the same thing as literary classics, but they're related. The reason why, if you walk into the fantasy and science fiction section of any bookstore, Almost the only thing you can guarantee you'll find are the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And it's not because there are scores of new readers, but because there are always new readers who think, I finally need to get around to this. I like the movies. You will find in almost any bookstore you walk into a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses because there are always people that are going to say, I need to try that. Um, and and they'll give up and, you know, and, and, and then it'll not get passed on to the children. So 50 years later, the kids will say, I should try that. Tolkien will always be at the head of the market in that sense. And that's always going to crowd other people off the shelves. George R.R. R. Martin is going to be in bookstores from now on, um, no matter whether he finishes The Winds of Winter or whatever it is at all. He's, he's in that uh, list. Uh, it's very difficult to get in there, but you can't blame bookstores for stocking what they find sells. No, no, I don't blame them at all. I've got no criticism of them whatsoever. Um, I guess, I mean, it's not quite, you know, winding up, but we, we've been talking about for almost an hour about posthumous publication. And I guess what I'd say, my own view of it is this, posthumous republication, which is done to preserve reputations, whatever else, I think is a great thing. I love it. Hmm. I'm delighted to see that our my friend Bill Schaefer is going to be doing the Best of Lucius Shepard Volume 2. Right. Um, which I'm, m makes me very happy because Lucius right now, I mean, I saw a tweet go past our modern communication, I saw a tweet go past from John Clute yesterday or the day before mm. saying that Lucia Shepard's reputation was falling into the shadows as, as, as happens when an author dies. And this, you know, stuff being republished helps bring it back to our attention. And obviously that's one of the values of the Library of America. It's one of the values mm. of the Masterworks and the Tor Essentials and things like that. Anything which, you know, those have republication, undeniably good thing. Things like, Actual posthumous publication of new work is much more doubtful, in my opinion. I don't know that we would lose a lot in a lot of cases if it was just left as unpublished as manuscripts for academics to deal with if they wish to. But, you know, I guess that, that the vagaries of the marketing and interests. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's an awkward uh, question, partly because it's partly in genre and partly out of genre. I mean, there's another thing. We mentioned Philip K. Dick's posthumous uh publications of Confessions of a Crap Artist and things like this, which were mainstream novels. 
he couldn't get them published. He would never have been able to get them published during his lifetime. And if had he not become the Philip K. Dick of Hollywood, they probably would never have been published. I've read manuscripts by authors uh, who could not get them published during their lifetime, which were, which were very good manuscripts. But the one I'm thinking of was a non-science fiction novel by a well-known science fiction writer who died only a couple of years. I can, I can mention her name, I guess. It was Kathleen Angunam. She wrote mm. a terrific historical novel uh, that I'm fairly certain she, I don't know if she had it in final, final form, but she was having no luck with it. And a case yeah. like that, which may be the same thing with Lafferty, where you have somebody whose only reputation is within a field, and they leave behind some excellent unpublished manuscripts that happen not to fall into that field, they're probably not going to ever see print. And that's a, that's that's a kind of a sad thing. It is sad. I mean, look, anything where a writer has work finished that they would like to see in the world, it is unfortunate when it doesn't find its way into the world. It genuinely is. Um, and... You know, it's unfortunate when things can't find a market. There's always good work that can't find a market. You know, Avram Davidson, towards well, even towards the end of his life, mm -hmm. was not super commercial, though he wrote wonderful work. And of course, there's always that thing that anyone who's you know widely read in the field, maybe very familiar with the field, will develop esoteric tastes, and you can find that you're responding to stuff that you wish was more popular, but it, which is a separate but not completely unrelated question. There's always an issue of how, how things are going to you know, thrive in the commercial market, and there's not much you can do about that. Um, I would love it if Kathy Gunan's book could find you know, a market, but the fact that it couldn't prior to her death suggests that it'll be difficult you know, now, but I mean, one could hope. I mean, you know, I was encouraged to see that, I forget the name of the publisher, but I noticed that Jonathan Carroll's latest book, Mr. Breakfast, mm -hmm. finally found a U.S. publisher, having come out in Poland a year or two ago, I think. So, you know, well, this, I mean, this is the, things, the publishing landscape we're in. Well, it, 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 it's a state we're in. One of the things we can do is keep calling attention to the fact that there are a lot of probably very first-rate books out there which you and I can't read, some of which were completed by their authors, some of which the authors desperately wanted to have in print, and for purely commercial reasons or uh, or in some cases, let's be honest, in some cases, estates mismanage authors or, or agents who still have an author's account after the author's death can mismanage the author into oblivion it's by over-anticipating what the demand is. In other words, there's a, there's a sense, especially among estates and family members, to uh, estimate the author as being one of the great American authors of all time, and their books should be in print from... I don't know, Harvard University Press, that's never going to happen. But being extremely uh, elitist about your author's estate's work and its value can do more harm than good. And I think that's happened in a few cases. Yeah. I mean, there, there, it's always a case-by-case -case thing. I mean, you know, plainly, I mean, I, the, the four books that Philip K. Dick pub, published after his death, mm -hmm. Gather Yourselves Together, Radio Free Albemuth, Humpty Dumpty in Oakland and Voices from the Street. I mean, were interesting books, but he couldn't get them published. But I mean, some people did get very major work, I guess, published. It's interesting, although it's not a great example. I'm pretty sure that almost all of the books that bore Lovecraft's name came out after he died. Because didn't um, his first collection come out after his di he died? His first collection was The Outsider and others. There was one chapbook published uh, yeah. during his lifetime. Uh, it was simply a novella, I think. But yeah. Uh, Lovecraft never appeared in hardback. No, actually, that novella was a hardback. Um, it may have been William Crawford who published. At any rate, I don't know if this actually amounts to much. There have been in literature major works published. I guess it's not impossible. I mean, I guess my own feeling is I would. I mean, I don't know. Part of me goes, go with the wishes of the author and see what happens. But you know, we'll have to see. To the, I mean, there to are the posthumous extent, work coming. Yeah, to the extent that we can find out what the wishes of the author were. Um, Lovecraft, my guess, I mean, Durleth knew him, Donald Wandre knew him. I suspect that they thought he would have been absolutely delighted to get a book contract. I don't think he had any sense at all during his own lifetime as to how to do that. I he, think Lovecraft would have been floored by the idea that his work would be being read in 2021. Oh, yeah. I think I think that's absolutely true. Um, Though, I mean, it's interesting as to how, how meaningful that is to the writer in the, in the end of the day, because they're still gone, right? You know, so... Well, I mean, was it forty years since Frank Herbert died? Nearly, and that's true. Uh, but th that, that's a that's a that that kind of commercial success, where there's all kinds of 
frankly, economic reasons to keep a franchise alive is a completely different matter, almost the opposite matter, of trying to preserve authors who otherwise would have died in pulpdom. I mean, Robert E. Howard, for example, uh, I don't know if he ever saw a hardcover edition of his no, book in his lifetime. I'm I think he sure saw not. pulp publication. That was about all. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, that's posthumous publication. Before we wind up, what else is happening in your, your science fiction world, Gary? Are you reading? Are you paying attention? Anything happening? I mean, pay, paying attention is something I've never been good at. Um, I have, um, and, and no, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm and one of those points where you have just read a, a lot of anthologies and some good novels, but it's all somewhat similar. I now have in front of me Goliath by Tochi Onyabuchi, on your mm-hmm. which I'm really looking forward to. And I'm yeah. putting off starting it because I, I enjoy looking forward to a book. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where yes. the minute you open the book, your anticipation begins to dissipate. And then the book has to either <laughs> live up to your dissertation, to your expectations, which I expect this will, uh, it frequently does. But nevertheless, there's sometimes I don't want to start a book because I'm afraid of two things. I'm afraid it won't be as good as I hope it will be. And I'm afraid it'll be better than I hope it will be. I certainly understand wanting to preserve that sense of anticipation, though I'm also aware that at least for me, it carries the risk that, you know, if you encounter a lot of negative feedback before the book actually gets into the world and you get to read it, you can talk yourself out of reading the thing you were anticipating reading before you ever get to read it. That's true. Which is not, not a smart thing to do. I think you should dive in. I mean, Toshi Onyabuchi's book is going to be great. Yeah. You know, um, Riot Baby was great. Uh, his YA novels are excellent. So there's no reason to think that Goliath won't be terrific. And I would, I'm, I've had it for a while. And you're right. I've got some, some stuff, particularly in my Kindle stacked up, that I'm really looking forward to. And that, that's certainly one of them. And there are books which are now beginning to be whispered about as 2022 and 2023 books, and even 2024 books mm-hmm. that you have to be excited about. If you've been paying, have you been paying attention to social media, Gary? Some social media. Have you? So you would have seen that Kelly Link has got Kelly, two new books coming out. Two books, a short story in, collection and um, the novel. The- the novel. Mm. I think the novel will come in 2024. Uh, I also have seen that Ian McDonald is just on the very cusp today of finishing a novel he's been working on on and off since the the, the end of the last millennia, Gary, a book called mm-hmm. Hopeland. And I, now I read a 30,000-word chunk of Hopeland a couple of years ago, and it was brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. So if the book holds up, and I'm optimistic that it will, when mm. it comes out late next year, early 2023, it's going to be a corker. My sense, reading, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to mention um, McDonald right after we're talking about Anya Pucci, because the, we're talking about a fairly new writer and a, and, a, and a fairly experienced writer, both of whom have generated expectations that uh, that are really encouraging so i so yeah i would look forward to any anything by either of those writers and i completely forgot the thought that that paragraph was supposed to end with but there was one that's okay that's okay um, i mean we've talked about books from dead people and i honestly i'm for all that i mean i gotta say 2021 for me has been a just a difficult year but there are some amazing books i'm, I'm looking forward to next year i'm very 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 optimistic about the one thing i know uh, this is a, a topic for another podcast we can keep it in mind for the next time we talk one-on-one but you have to do this all year with short fiction you're you're reading hundreds and hundreds of stories and i thought about this because i just finished reading not this year well okay maybe not but nevertheless you still have to you still have to think okay here's a new ted chang story let's say and you go into that expecting to be blown away. And more often than not, you are. And the same thing's true with the new Kelly Link story and that sort of thing. How do you keep up that level of expectation? There are a lot of good writers in the field. And one of the things I've begun to notice is that just from a technical literary point of view, from from craftsmanship, from dialogue, I'm not going to use world building because I don't use that as one of my criteria. There are simply more competent writers in the field now than there have ever been. That's my argument. That's probably true. That is probably true. I think, and we're, we haven't got to it, was one of the topics that I put down as a possible topic for the, 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 the podcast was about how inclusive our inclusion really is and how successful yeah. our inclusion really is. But I mean, some of the th- things that excite me now 
are things that are coming from, or there are works that are coming from areas that I wasn't reading before or wasn't reading closely or widely in before. Mm-hmm. So that excites me. So, you know, the fact that we're going to see two major works of African science fiction anthol- anthologies next year, this coming year, 2022, mm-hmm. both uh, co-edited by Cherie Renee Thomas, right? So there's a book, uh, Trouble the Waters, which mm-hmm. is coming from Third Man Press, who published Cherie's collection. And that looks terrific. Mm-hmm. got some really interesting stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And then there's Africa Risen, which is the book we were talking about with uh, Ogachinovwe Akpeki a couple of weeks ago, which has been co- co-edited with Zelda Knight and Cherie Renee Thomas. Right. That looks great. There's a collection, an anthology called Reclaim, Reclaim the Stars, 17 Tales from Space, which is edited by Zoraya Cordova. And it's a, or uh, yeah, Zoraya Cordova, which is a anthology of science fiction by Latinx authors, right? Mm-hmm. And it looks really interesting. I must admit right now, I feel like we've had a whole bunch of Chinese science fiction kind of things, and there actually have been a couple of those out recently. I know Solaris just published a major, or is just publishing actually, a major new anthology of, science, of Chinese science fiction called Synopticon, and I mm-hmm. know that Tor.com next year will publish a major new anthology of Chinese science fiction by female writers that looks really interesting, right? So there's that. That was a really beautiful cover. It looks fantastic. The title alludes me right at this moment, so I'll try and put that in the notes if I remember if I can. But the, these kind of anthologies actually do excite me for reasons which, I mean, sometimes even puzzle me. Partly it's because they will present writers I'm, I'm not familiar with. Mm. Partly because they'll give me context information that I don't have and I'm interested. And partly because my own reading journey is peppered with anthologies that have been hugely influential to me as a reader. And so I'm optimistic about finding more books like that that I'm that I'm going to be that are going to influence me, you know, similarly I hope. I'm glad you mentioned the Latinx anthology because it's what I've been waiting for when I was as I mentioned I just finished reading the second volume of uh, the Galak's book of South Asian science fiction and fantasy uh, which tends a lot more toward fantasy and horror than the first volume did. But there are two volumes of South Asian fiction, mostly India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, but some from Tibetan exiles and, and others. There have been, we've mentioned a number of anthologies of Chinese science fiction. There have been a couple of anthologies of Korean science fiction now. Um, I haven't seen recently a, a new anthology of Japanese science fiction, but you mentioned the African thing. So we go through every continent um, and we end up, I was thinking, where's the Where's the uh, comprehensive uh, Latin American anthology of science fiction, um, but which I don't there's necessarily been a couple. There's one out right now. There's, there's well, actually there's more and more Latin, Latin science fiction coming, yeah. Okay, and there's been a couple of them. I think that uh, Small Beer published a big anthology of this five, yes, six, that's eight a, years ago. That's, that's a few years ago. And the title is really, really escaping me, which kills was me because Cosmos I know... Was that Latinos or was that... No, Cosmos no, something. No, 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 no. But uh, the book that is coming out, which we're going to going to be uh, reviewing in the next issue, I hope, is Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, which is edited by Alex Hernandez, Matthew David Goodwin, and Sarah Rafael Garcia. And that's okay. coming out from Ohio State Press. And that looks like a really interesting book. And there's more and more of that. But we, my friend, are at the end of our time. We've shot through our hour. We should wind up and segue into the next time. All right. And so until the next time, then this says this once again in October, been the Cood Street Podcast. Yeah, there can't be too many more of these for the year. <laughs>